for Hope Church, the truth that you want for each and every one of us. And so we pray that you would grant us the faith to respond to your word now. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So please, uh, if you've got a, a Bible, turn there with me now. And I'm reading from verse 1 in chapter 1 of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech... Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one's named Orpah, the other Ruth, and after they lived there about 10 years, both Machlon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Verse one of the story locates us in terms of the time frame of where we are. We are in the time of the judges. And I've been spending a little bit of time in preparation for this in the book of Judges. And the time of the judges, when the judges ruled or when the judges judged literally, was a pretty sordid time. If you read through the book of Judges, if you haven't done it recently, you'll find all sorts of sordid and moral compromise. You'll find expressions of idolatry, of homosexuality, of rape, of murder. It was a time of religious and moral compromise. And the end of the book of Judges ends in chapter 21, verse 25, with these words, it says, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. That's the context into which Ruth is written. And in some senses, scholars would say Ruth was written almost as a contrast to the book of Judges. No king, no vision of God, simply a lawless every man for himself attitude. That was the time of Judges and Ruth has been written into that context. Now the author says from verse 1 that it was a time of famine. There was famine in the land of Judah so because of that famine, a man in Bethlehem, along with his family, decided to get out and leave for a time to live in Moab. Verse 2 highlights the importance of names for us. The author describes the man's name. He describes the wife's name. He talks about the two sons' names. He emphasizes their names and he wants us to know that these names are significant. So let me uh, give you a, a literal translation of the names that are listed. Ali Malik literally means my God is king. Is there a better name in all of scripture? Ali Malik, my God is king. Actually, my wife was quite keen to name one of my boys Ali Malik. We didn't actually go there in the end. You'll be pleased to know Peter and Michael. Naomi means my delight or pleasant. So these beautiful names of the husband and wife, my God is king, my delight and pleasant, that's the first generation, but the translations of the two sons is not so sharp. And so machlon literally means sick. 
And Kilion means pining. How about naming your boy sick and pining? Something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong from the first generation from mum and dad to the second generation. The first generation acknowledged that Yahweh is king, my God is king. The wife acknowledges her pleasantness, her delight in her king. And then the second generation emerges sickness and despair. Something has gone badly wrong. Now, the author has told us that there is famine in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. According to Deuteronomy 28, that means that this land is sitting under a curse. The land of Judah, the land of Bethlehem is sitting under the curse of famine. Bethlehem, of course, does anyone know what the translation of Bethlehem is? Anybody give that a go? Bethlehem, literally, the house of bread, the house of bread. How ironic, how tragic that the house of bread in the house of bread is now experiencing a famine. So the man, his wife, and his two sons, they get out. They head towards Moab. In verse three, we learn of Alimalek's death. The two sons take Moabite wives, Orpah, and her name means gazelle, and Ruth, Her literal translation means friendship, female companion, a neighbor. Again, very significant, these names. The three men have died by verse five. Ali Malik, the two sons have died. The three women are left alive, but Naomi, whose name means delight, finds herself in a foreign land. Wonder if you've ever experienced that sense of loss You've done all that you can to acknowledge that God is king in your life. You've done all that you can to say that this is a good life, that this is a pleasant life, and yet trials have come your way. Great loss has come your way. That was the experience of Naomi as she finds herself in this foreign land. It's very easy to drink, drink, to drink and drunk. It's very easy to jump to wrong conclusions at this point. It's very easy to have short time frames when we're in the midst of loss, when we're in the midst of suffering to say, I want this fixed today, I want this fixed tomorrow. The author records for us that this time frame happened over 10 years. The time frame that Naomi is given is 10 years. But verse six records that God has not abandoned his people after all. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepare to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So the Lord has made a direct intervention into the lives of the people of Judah. He's providing food. The house of bread is once again sustaining God's people. So Naomi make the decision to return back to Bethlehem, she takes the two girls with her, the two women with her. She sets off with two barren daughters-in-law. Her husband is dead, 
Her sons are dead. The two daughters-in-law have not conceived a child in 10 years. No doubt she questions, was this even the right decision for me to head towards Moab in the first place? But now she returns to Judah. Verse seven, the three men set off on the road, but in verse eight, Naomi instructs Ruth and Orpah to return home to their mother's home. Return back to Moab. Go back to your mother's house. Maybe you will find a husband back there. In verse nine and 10, she invokes the blessing of God on the woman and they will, that they will know God's kindness, rest, and also a husband. She kisses them, they weep, and declare that they will travel back with her to Judah. No, we're gonna go on with you, Naomi, the two women say. We're gonna follow you back to Judah. But Naomi is adamant. Look at verse 11. Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I gonna have any sons? Who would come, who could become your husbands? Return home. She is so adamant, she repeats it again in verse 12. Return home. Now, in fact, the author hammers home this theme of returning home. The Hebrew verb that is used there, shuv, is repeated 10 times in this chapter. So the author is saying, let's just focus on the importance of this returning home. It's variously translated, the same word is variously translated, turn back, return, go back, return home, it's all the same word, 10 times, return, return, return. It would appear the author is trying to highlight not only the importance of returning, but also the ambiguity of where are you to return to, where is your home? And there's an ambiguity for all of us in this. We are called to return, but where is our home? Where are we called to return to? Last year, we reflected on the letter of First Peter. In fact, Hope Church spent four months going through the letter of First Peter, and we heard time and time again that this is not our home. This earth is ultimately not our home. We are foreigners and exiled, exiles, and yet we were called to return home. Verse 12 and verse 13, we begin to hear how desolate Naomi really feels. Without hope of remarriage, she declares actually that her plight is worse than the younger woman. Look at verse 13, or partway through verse 13, we, we read, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. That's quite a statement to make. She starts comparing her lot with the younger woman and she says her plight is worse than theirs because the Lord's hand has turned against me. That's quite something to say. It's one that invites us to begin to reflect on the character of Naomi right now here in chapter one. Key principle in reading scripture, we hear a lot of things in scripture. We hear characters saying a lot of things and sometimes they are heroes in the character the heroes in the scripture story. But just because they're a hero in the story doesn't mean what they say and what they do is something that God is inviting us to pursue. And we need to be critically engaging with Naomi in this first chapter. Are we seeing an understandable expression of loss and grief? 
Or has her journey to Moab proven too much for Naomi and bitterness is beginning to stain her heart? As we, as we move to verse 14, we see a parting of the ways. And so we see Orpah, the gazelle, she heads for home. Orpah takes her mother-in-law's counsel. Now, I make no comment about whether it's right to take a mother-in-law's counsel then or now, but that's what Orpah did. Orpah, the gazelle, heads back. She listens to Ruth, and she heads back to Moab. But Ruth does not. Listen to Ruth's response in verse 14. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you from me. And when Naomi heard, realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman explained, exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Her famous declaration in verse 16 talks about the commitment of Ruth. Ruth clings to Naomi in verse 14. It's the same verb used there that's used in Genesis 2, where we read, a man leaves his father, father and his mother and is united, cleaves to his wife. That's the same verb that Ruth is doing to her mother-in-law. She is united. She is clinging to her mother-in-law. Her famous declaration in verse 16, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. And to, to back up the strength of her convictions, the strength of her commitment, she even invokes an oath with God's. She even invites the judgment of God upon her if she departs from Naomi. And so they return to Bethlehem they arrive in Bethlehem and the women in Bethlehem say, can this be Naomi who left so many years ago? And look at verse 20, look at Naomi's response. Don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. For all of Naomi's bitterness, for all of her sense of loss, even emptiness the text talks about, despite her wanting to languish in her own bitterness, even to changing her name to being called Mara, which literally means bitter, despite all that sense of loss. At the end of chapter one, it concludes with a word of hope. When Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, the barley harvest was beginning. The house of bread 
was about to produce the primary ingredient for life, a word of hope. So this morning I want to reflect on how we engage with loss. How do we engage with loss? Is Naomi's the response that's invited us of us or is there a better way? As I mentioned earlier, we need to critically engage with the actions and the words of Naomi. Even central characters in scripture can fall short. Consider what we've heard from her in this chapter. In verse 13, she's blaming God for turning his hand against her. In verse 13, she's believing her plight is more bitter than her daughters-in-law. She's encouraging Ruth to return to her pagan gods along with Orpah. In verse 15. In verse 21, she's blaming God for returning to Bethlehem empty and suffering afflictions and misfortune. And significantly, in verse 20, she is actually blaming God for her bitterness. Chapter 1 is not Naomi's finest hour. In contrast, we see Ruth, the Gentile, the woman from Moab. And she shows the sort of faith and courage and loyalty that we can celebrate. Chapter one in this book raises the vital question of how are we to respond when calamity and loss comes our way? As we learnt while spending four months in First Peter last year, suffering is a part of our calling. Suffering is a part of the calling of every Christian follower of Christ. 1 Peter 1.7, we heard and let me remind you, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now at this point in chapter one in the book of Ruth, we find Naomi's faith is found wanting. She's blaming God. She's becoming bitter. And that bitterness is a real problem in anyone's walk with God's. That bitterness not only quietly poisons the individual soul, as it was doing for Naomi there, it can so easily contaminate a community. One bitter soul. If I could use a colloquial illustration one pit of soul is like a dead possum in the water supply it poisons the water supply and that's why the writer to Hebrews says see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many Hebrews 12 15 the good news is that even if you feel bitter even if the loss that you have experienced is so profound that like Naomi, you are saying, I am bitter. God's grace is sweeter still. God's mercy is stronger still. Still, as we are going to see in the next three chapters, God will not allow one person's lack of faith. He's not going to allow one person's bitterness to thwart his purposes, his larger purposes. And that is the tragedy of Naomi's self-absorption at the end of chapter one. She fails to see what Yahweh is doing in the midst of all of this trial. 
If ever there was a man who had the right to be bitter at the deal that he'd been handed, it was Horatio Spafford. Some of you will know the story. In 1870, his four-year-old son was killed by scarlet fever. One year later, in the Chicago fire, he lost much of his business, and such was the trauma of his family. He said, I'm sending us on a holiday. My wife and the four daughters, they were going on a holiday to England to get away from all the loss that they had experienced. So he goes down to New York. He puts his family on the ship. He's called back to Chicago for unforeseen business. His wife and his four daughters head for England, and of course, they collide with another ship in the mid-Atlantic. The ship goes down, and miraculously, his wife is saved. She is unconscious. She ends up floating on a plank, and she survives. His four daughters perish in the middle of the Atlantic. And then the famous telegram comes back from his wife, and it reads, and I quote, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mrs. Goodwin, children, and Tanetta, Willie Culver, lost, go with Leroux, a fellow survivor, until answer reply in Paris, Spafford's. And so Horatio receives this tragic news. He's lost his son, he's lost his business, he's lost his four daughters. His wife sends this telegraph back to him. He gets on the next ship and he heads towards England to meet with his wife. And as he crosses the Atlantic, the captain brings him up onto the bridge and the captain says to Horatio, says, by the best of our intentions, we think this is where your daughters perished. The water here is three miles deep. Horatio goes back to his cabin and he pens the following words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. What a response, what a response when everything that is dear to him has been stripped away. I wanna reflect on a biblical expression, a biblical example of how we can respond faithfully when God takes away what is precious to us. If you've got your Bibles, I wanna turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter four. I think it's on page 365 in your church Bibles. And I wanna draw your attention to the account between Elisha and the Shunammite woman who happens to be a Moabite. She comes from the same region that Ruth and Orpah come from. Elijah comes into contact with this woman and I'm reading from verse eight in chapter four. On the day that Elisha went to Shunam and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal so whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him and then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. And so Elisha is offered this hospitality by the Shunammite woman and he's struck by the hospitality. In fact, he's so struck by it, he wants to bless this woman in return. So he says to his servant Gehazi, Ask, call the Shunammites and tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us, now what can be done for you? Now this woman is barren. 
This woman has no child. Her husband is an elder gentleman. They've been able to have, unable to have children, and she responds, she replied, I have a home among my own people. In other words, I'm fine, I'm fine. But Elisha pushes her. Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the door and he said, about this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. This is what she's been longing for. She's been longing to know a child. And Elisha speaks this word of hope into her life. In a year's time, you will have this child. And she doesn't want to believe it. She doesn't want to dare believe that this wouldn't happen. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, do not mislead your servants. But the man of God has spoken. And within a year, she conceives, she has a child, she has a young son. And this young son grows and he's doing well and he goes out to play with his dad in the field. But as he goes out this day, he's maybe six or seven years old. He says, dad, my, my head's hurting. My head is bursting. My brain is about to burst. And dad sends him back to his mother. His mother takes this precious child, six or seven years into her hands. She brings him back into the home and that day he dies. The son, the promised son that she'd been longing for and why she, she didn't even dare to believe because this loss would be too much for her, he's died. So she goes and lays the son on the bed that she had prepared for Elisha. And she runs out to see Elisha. And she goes and sees Elisha and, and when she reaches Elisha, here's this response that I want us to ponder. This incredible response. She has lost so much. In verse 24, she saddled up the donkey. She went out to Elijah. When she saw him in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite woman. Run to meet her. Ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And look at the next verse. How does she respond? She's lost everything that was so precious to her and look at her response. She says, everything is all right. How could she say that? Everything is all right. It is well with my soul. What kind of faith allows a woman who has just lost her six, seven-year-old son to say, everything is all right? When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet, Gehazi. Let's pause on there. When she reached the man of God, she took hold of his feet. What does that remind you of? She fell at his feet and she takes hold of this man of God. We've heard that somewhere else. Gehazi came over to push her away. We've heard that somewhere else too. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me. He's not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And hear the grief. You can hear the grief in the woman's voice there. Did I ask you for a son? Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? And then Elisha says to his servant Gehazi, take your cloak, tuck it into your belt. In other words, gird up your loins. 
We've got to move quickly. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone on, that you meet. If anyone greets you, do not answer them. Lay my staff on the boy's face. And then the woman says, no, you're not sending your servants. You're not sending a staff to put on my son. I'm not leaving until you come with me. You're coming with me. She pleads with him. And so they both go back. And Elisha comes to her home. And she, he goes upstairs. And he closes the door behind him. And he lies on the dead boy face to face, eye to eye, arm to arm. And then he stands up and he walks around the room and he does it again. He lies down and the boy sneezes seven times and his eyes are opened, risen to life. Resurrection. That which was most precious is taken from her. And she could say, everything is okay. Why could she say that? Because she trusted in the purposes of God. That what she was going through right there, she trusted in the man of God. She trusted that the promises of God, although she might have doubted, she didn't want to hear it to start with, she trusted and so she could say, everything is okay. Can you say that this morning? Can you say, despite the struggles and the loss that you have gone through, can you say, it is well with my soul? Or you're in that place that Naomi finds herself at the end of chapter one, where bitterness is consuming and poisoning that pleasant character that God has given to you. Where do you find yourself this morning? The author wants us to hear in chapter one that we have to return. We have to go back. We have to go back. We have to turn back. We have to go home. Ten times he says to you, you've got to go back. You've got to return. You've got to return to Bethlehem where you find the one who can raise you to life. You find the bread of life. You've got to come back to Jesus the bread of life. You see, God gives us two options. When he strips away, when he does the refining, there's two options for you. The option is to choose bitterness, and that's what your flesh wants. That's the natural response. That's the human response that says, my plight is worse than this sister and daughter and brother that I see. My plight is worse and I am bitter in my soul. That's what your flesh offers you this morning. But what the word of God offers you, what the word of God concludes chapter one in the book of Ruth is a word of hope. He says, the barley harvest is about to begin. That trial you're going through, that testing you're going through, the barley harvest is about to begin. You can choose bitterness and you carry on that pathway that you're on and it will poison your soul or you can choose hope. And hope is stronger and deeper and more profound to transform your life into resurrection life, to raise the dead to life. Choose hope. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer.
Father, as we begin this journey this morning, at this point in time, right now you are meeting your church, right now you are meeting us and you are offering us hope and we thank you that you have the power to raise the dead to life. We look at our lives and we think, how can it change? How can anything change? And you say, I am the God who raises the dead to life. I can change your circumstances. Come back to me. Come back to me. Return home. There is hope. There is hope. And so, Father, we thank you for this gift of hope that you're placing in our hearts this morning through this word. Lord, fill us. Fill us with your hope that it might transform those roots of bitterness, those those cords of bitterness that are entangling us. Strip them away, I pray, in Jesus' name. Raise us to life. Raise us to life. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.